0: Welcome to Radio Curious, I'm Barry Vogel. We humans are a lot like other primates on Earth, but because we don't associate with them, we often assume that our interpersonal behavior, how we make friends, how we work together, interact with strangers, relate to our spouse, etc., is the product of our unique personality and environment. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Dario Mastripiere author of Games, Primates, Play, an undercover investigation of the evolution and economics of human relationships. He's a professor of comparative human development, evolutionary biology, neurology and psychiatry, and behavioral neuroscience at the University of Chicago. Professor Pietri and I visited by phone from his office in Chicago, Illinois on April 16, 2012, and began with a description of the close relationship we humans have with other primates.
1: Human beings are a particular kind of animals. Uh, So we belong in the animal kingdom with all the other animals. We happen to be primates. So we're closely related to uh, uh, species of primates that include the great apes, chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans. But uh, we're also fairly closely related to uh, other species of monkeys, such as baboons and macaques. So obviously, uh, we have evolved and uh, we have some unique uh, characteristics that are not shared by these other primates. For one thing, we have a very large brain, uh, much larger than the brain of any other primate species. And with this big brain, have have uh, come some new amazing skills. Uh, we have high intelligence and the ability to use language. So that really sets us apart from other animals. However, what I say in my book is that um, when it comes to social relationships, so the way we interact with our family members, with our friends, with our business partners, romantic partners, and even with strangers, even with a stranger that we meet in an elevator, we really uh, express our human nature. So I think the human nature is strongest uh, uh, in our uh, human relationships, in our social relationships.
0: So what you're saying then is that the skills and the language that we have allow us to analyze who we are and what we're doing, have a conversation like this, but they don't so much control how we get along with others.
1: Well, You know, our intelligence and our language abilities are tools that that we use uh, in our everyday lives. But having these relationships that we have, uh, that we manage every day, you know, either face-to-face with the people we meet at work or at home, or these days over email or Facebook, uh, you know, having these relationships essentially creates all kinds of problems, okay? So when you make a commitment, for example, to someone, whether it's your romantic partner or a child, there's always uh, the possibility that things might change that maybe your partner will cheat on you or that you might want to end the relationship or you might want to invest less in your child things like that so there are these problems that are really nothing new because they're shared by uh, other primates uh, who also have relationships so when these problems arise we tend to use solutions that we didn't really invent There's nothing new in the way we solve uh, uh, these social problems. So the fact that we use language doesn't really change that much how we solve these social problems.
0: Let's talk about some examples of the problems and the solutions that are the same that other primates use.
1: Yes. So, for example, in my book I talk about the way people behave when they ride in an elevator with a stranger. Uh, Anybody who has been in an elevator once will know that uh, typically two strangers will try not to make uh, direct eye-to-eye contact. Usually they don't talk. They act indifferent. Maybe they act a little nervous. Uh, They try to stare at at the ceiling or they look at their watch and uh, sometimes they even press a floor button that's already been pressed because they don't want to admit that there is another person there. And if you put two monkeys in a cage, they act exactly the same way. They try not to make eye contact, they act indifferent, uh, they try to ignore each other. So the common problem that arises in this situation is that there is high risk of aggression, okay? You're in a close restricted space with somebody you don't know And in monkeys, when this happens, there's a very high risk of aggression. There's a risk that there's going to be a fight. So obviously, this is not going to happen in the elevator, but our minds unconsciously sort of register this risk of aggression, and we act in ways to minimize this risk of aggression. So acting indifferent and not making eye contact is a way to try to avoid a fight. So that's the solution that we find to this problem.
0: So on a singular situation, that takes us to dominance between two people or within a group of people. But that spreads in our species well.
1: Yes. Dominance is is a, is a very important aspect of, of human behavior as well as the behavior of many other primate species. So here's... Uh, the. the the basic idea of dominance. The idea is that we have relationships with people that we deal with every day. Okay, imagine a relationship with your wife or with your husband or with your children, right? When you have a relationship with somebody that you see every day, it's inevitable that uh, conflicts of interest arise, which means that one day you want to do something, your wife wants to do something else, whether it's watching a particular TV show or eating something for dinner. So there's a conflict of interest, essentially, interests come to clash. So there is three different ways in which you can solve these conflicts. One is that you have a fight. So every time there's disagreement over something, you have a fight. The winner decides what to watch TV, The loser loses. Or you can negotiate, okay? You can negotiate everything. Both ways to solve this problem are not very effective. They're very stressful. Uh, they have negative consequences for the relationship. If you fight all the time or if you negotiate all the time, it makes the situation the relation very unstable, very stressful. So dominance instead essentially is about one person always getting his way or her way. Okay? So whenever two different people in a relationship want something different, the dominant calls the shots and the other one does. So that way you, you save a lot of time and energy and stress. It's a way to reduce conflicts in
0: relationships. But when people select relationships, particularly romantic relationships, do you find that we pay attention to the dominant need, the need for dominance? It depends. I
1: mean, we all have personal personalities that are different from one, each other, and so we might be more compatible with certain individuals more than others. But a dominance is a unique to every relationship. Okay, so you may have a relationship with your brother and one with your sister and you might be dominant in one relationship and subordinate in the other. So dominance is unique to every relationship. So it's not that we all have a need for dominance and we want to be dominant all the time. Some people Have more of this tendency, but not everybody is like this. The idea is that when you start a relationship with somebody, okay, for whatever reason, maybe because somebody is sexually attractive to you or because, you know, you want to have children with them, you don't know exactly how the dominance is going to play out, okay? So initially, you know, people get along well, they always agree, but then at some point, the first disagreements start to, uh, to, to arise, starts to occur. And depending on how these disagreements are settled, then dominance is established. So after a while, you know, one partner becomes dominant and the other becomes subordinate, and then it's usually pretty stable then.
0: Yeah, you say that we, Homo sapiens, have a genetic disposition to resist the impulse to fight. When we are in an unresolved dominant submission relationship, how does that? resistance to the impulse to fight get resolved? So I think human beings
1: have uh, many different biological predispositions when it comes to uh, social behavior, when it comes to relationships. In some cases, we have a predisposition to be aggressive, you know, to be assertive, to impose ourselves. Okay? Aggression and fighting is advantageous under some circumstances. And so we, we have the predisposition, we have the potential to be aggressive. So sooner or later in your life, you know, anybody has been aggressive at some point, got into a fight, even a verbal fight, okay? We also have the predispositions to suppress aggressive behavior, to uh, reduce fighting, because although it might be advantageous, it's also very expensive and potentially very damaging, okay? So particularly if it's repeated, okay? If there are opportunities for fighting every day, this can't can't be good. So we also have the tendency to do things that can suppress, that can control Fighting, Okay, and dominance is one of these things.
0: So let's go back to the beginning of our conversation where we recognize the fact that one of the goals of our species is to reproduce. Uh, we curry favor with the opposite gender in different ways than other mammals do. We've evolved in different ways in the very recent portion of our evolutionary history, prior to the time when we separated from other great apes or other primates. Yes. Can you talk about how we have evolved in ways that are unique to us that have allowed our babies with large brains to be born, or require dual parenting?
1: Yes. So, first of all, it's not entirely appropriate to say that uh, uh, the goal of our species is to reproduce. I mean, typically, species don't don't have goals, okay? It's it's individuals that that have goals. So, uh, individuals, regardless of their species, tend to, you know, try and survive as long as possible and try to reproduce. I mean, there are people who make the conscious decisions not to reproduce, and that's fine. We can consciously decide whatever we want, but in general, animals and people, um, you know, have a goal to reproduce, but it's the individuals, not the species, okay? So a lot of our behavior, including our social behavior, as consequences uh, that are positive for our survival and reproduction. So we behave in ways to help us survive and help us reproduce. So this is basic and it's shared by all animal species. As I said, humans uh, uh, have differentiated themselves from other primates, mainly with the fact that we have evolved this very large brain. There's different theories as to why our brains are so much larger than others, okay? Some having to do with language, some having to do with the complexity of the societies in which we live, okay? At some point, uh, one of these theories said the problems that we faced in our societies became so complex that we needed to evolve a bigger brain to be able to deal with these problems, okay? So having this large brain essentially opens up all kinds of new opportunities, okay? It's like... If you get a very powerful computer, there's all kinds of new things that you can do with this computer, even things that you hadn't originally thought of, okay? So you might have built this new computer for one reason, just to do math problems, but the truth is that you can paint, you can play chess, there's all kinds of things that you can do with this new powerful computer. So that's what happened with the human brain. Now, evolving a big brain... Is a bit of a problem. For example, for a child, okay, it takes a long time to grow this big brain. So that's why children, you know, take their time in maturing first uh, in their mother's body, and then after they're born, they're not mature for many years. This allow gives their brain an opportunity to grow slowly, and mature and acquire all the information that it's needed. This also makes it necessary, as you said. For a child to be raised by two parents, because it takes a lot of effort to raise a human child successfully.
0: In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Dario Maestri Pieri, author of Games Primates Play, an undercover investigation of the evolution and economics of human relationships. I'm Barry Vogel. Dario. We've mentioned the term evolution and how we have changed. That's kind of a macro term in reflecting the millions of years that it takes for one species to evolve into another. Can you talk about how that happens on a micro term from one generation to another where perhaps there's a mutant gene that provides greater benefit to that member?
1: Yes, as you said, uh, evolution can occur at a m- macro level over uh, thousands or millions of years, but it can also occur uh, uh, from one generation to the next. One definition of evolution is that uh, it's a change in the gene frequencies of a population. Okay? So imagine that there's a population of 10 individuals, and six of them have a gene for blue eye color, and four of them have a gene for brine- brown eye color next generation some of these individuals reproduce others don't uh, we have a population of 10 individuals but this time 3 individuals have the gene for blue eye color and 7 have a gene for brown eye color evolution has occurred because the frequencies of the two gene genes has changed okay why does this happen you mentioned mutation mutations that's a, one of the causes but more often than not what happens is that some individuals are better able to survive and to reproduce than others. As a result, they're more likely to leave copies of their genes through their children and other relatives. So that's why some genes become more common and other less common in the population from one generation to the next, because not all individuals survive and reproduce equally.
0: So then applying that to us, to Homo sapiens, can you give some examples?
1: Yes uh there are uh uh individuals for example who have very good social skills okay they uh they know how to be nice uh, towards others they know how to make friends they know how to meet people uh for a species like uh, like us uh having good social skills is very important okay it helps us survive in this complex societies in which we live it also ha- it also helps us meet people and form partnerships and maybe find a spouse and have children so people who uh, don't have very good social skills. For example, people with uh, autistic disorders, uh, they're less likely sometimes to to find a partner and to have children. So uh, there might be some genetic basis to to autism, and so if you have uh, genes that that are responsible for poor social skills, that might carry a disadvantage in terms of your ability to reproduce, to have children, and to leave copies of your genes to the next generation.
0: In developing the social skills and developing the relationships, you have a section in your book, Games, Primates Play, about how we humans test the bonds that we have with others. You have an interesting section in relationship to how male chimpanzees test the bonds and how that's been brought into our species and used by ancient Greek people.
1: Yes. Uh, when you form a cooperative relationship with somebody else, whether it's a, it's a joint business partnership, for example, if you open up a restaurant with a partner, or if it's a, it's a romantic relationship, whether so you marry someone and you have to have children together, it's, it's, both are examples of a cooperative relationship. Okay? These kinds of relationships always uh, create a problem, which is that initially both individuals are committed to the relationship, but in the future, things might change. You don't know if your business partner is still committed to you, whether he's cheating from, uh, from the partnership. We don't know whether your romantic partner is cheating on you, whether he or she's thinking of breaking up with you. So it makes it necessary to frequently test the strength of your bond. Essentially, romantic partners, they always ask each other, do you still love me? Do you still want to be with me? But this way of uh, testing commitment is not particularly strong because sometimes people lie or sometimes people are not sure about what they really want. So um, ancient Romans and also male baboons uh, found a way to test uh, commitment by essentially engaging in risky behaviors, and that involves... uh, uh, fondling the genitalia of another man. So in ancient Rome... Two men who uh, uh, made a uh, pledge of allegiance to each other would hold each other's testicles uh, in their hands. And two male baboons who form alliances to fight against other baboons, every now and then they get together and they fondle each other's testicles. The idea is that this is a very dangerous, potentially risky behavior that you wouldn't trust another male to come and hold your testicles in your hand unless you really like this... uh, uh, does male, and you're really committed to the relationship. So the general idea is that if you want to find out how much your partner values your relationship, you behave in ways that are risky, that are stressful, that are potentially dangerous, and you wait to see if there's a reaction, okay? If you get smacked in the head, it means things are not so good. (laughs) But if your partner lets you do this kind of stuff, it means you're still on good terms.
0: Do you have some examples of testing that go on now, in the 21st century?
1: Yes. I'll give you one more example from animals, and then I'll discuss some examples from humans. So there's a species of primates called capuchin monkeys in which uh, adults form alliances, agonistic alliances, just like the baboons that I described. So every now and then, two individuals who have an alliance, they have to test the strength of their bond. So they engage in these intrusive, annoying, stressful behaviors. So one monkey will approach another, will stick a finger up the nose of the other monkey and wait for a reaction. If the other one gets aggressive, it means their friendship is not so good, but if the other is tolerant, then it's okay uh... what about humans well somebody suggested that many uh... expressions of affection including love, uh, tend to have these uh, stressful uh... elements okay imagine a child who uh, jumps on, on his father's lap okay? It's it's a little intrusive. You wouldn't let uh, a child that you don't know do this to you, jump on your back and start pulling your hair and things like that. So the idea is that the child is being a little intrusive, a little stressful because he wants to see whether you still love him. You'll tolerate your dog when your dog jumps in your lap and licks your face, but you wouldn't tolerate this from a stray dog that you just met on the street, okay? So when you have a good relationship, you're willing to put up uh, with with a lot of stress and intrusiveness and even dangerous things that your partner might do. And there's even the idea out there that even sexual behavior in itself might have uh, very intimate, intrusive, stressful elements that at least indirectly provide information about how committed you are to the relationship. Okay? When the relationship is not so good, one of the two partners typically becomes less comfortable with, with, with sex, and so that sends a signal.
0: The carpucci monkeys, putting their fingers in another monkey's eye. Yes wouldn't that cause infection or danger of blindness or do those creatures have a particular ability to not be harmed by somebody else putting their finger in their eye
1: I don't think capuchin monkeys have a special ability not to be harmed by by uh, a finger being inserted into their eye socket these monkey fingers are dirty they can potentially damage the eye. So I, I think most of the time capuchin monkeys do it in a way that it turns out not to be harmful. But uh, the fact remains that this is a risky and potentially dangerous behavior. And so the way we explain this behavior is that by engaging in this intrusive and potentially dangerous behavior, a capuchin monkey finds out how committed to the relationship the other monkey is. Because if the relation, if the Reaction is positive if there's tolerance and patient immense, there's friendship.
0: You have theories about the way sexual abilities of our species have developed so that we can have sexual relationships at most any time as compared to other primates that can only have them when the female is in estrus.
1: Yeah, but we have to make a distinction between uh, uh, having the ability to have sex uh, all the time and having the desire to have sex all the time. It turns out that most other primate species share with humans the ability to have sex all the time. So other female primates have menstrual cycles that are very similar to those of, of women. And so they can have sex pretty much any day of the cycle. However, that doesn't mean that they want to. So they, in general, as you said, tend to have sex mostly at mid-cycle when the females are fertile, but not because they can't. It's just that they don't want to. So uh, there are hormonal changes during the cycle that make females more interested in sex at mid-cycle. But that's true also for our species, so we're not that different. There are studies that show that uh, if you ask women... Uh, First of all, when you have sex, they'll say, okay, on weekends, whatever, my husband is at home, or whatever. But if you ask women, when do you find yourself thinking about sex, you know, when do you find yourself wanting sex, they'll say it's more at mid-cycle, when they're fertile. So the same hormones that act on primates also act on the human females, and they increase motivation for sexual behavior at mid-cycle.
0: Let's talk about French kissing and its uh, history or background. My understanding is that that may have originated in our species when the mothers would chew food and push it into the baby's mouth. Uh,
1: I don't know. Uh, I'm not an expert in the history of French kissing. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I mean, what you are suggested seems like a plausible uh, origin, but I'm sure... There might be others, so uh, I don't think we're in the position to be able to say this is how it started or this is why it originated.
0: Yeah, you talk about it as a bond tester. Yes. uh, So uh, French kissing shares
1: some characteristics with other expressions of affection and, and, and sex in that it is uh, very intimate and very intrusive. So sticking your tongue inside the mouth of another person is very physically intimate, very intrusive, and it even potentially carries the, the risk of transmitting an infectious disease. Uh, so it tells something about how bonded and committed and also attracted to the other person you are. But when we invented this practice, and why, at what point in our history,
0: I don't know. So then you talk about a lapse in longer relationships of people French kissing.
1: Well, the idea is that, yes, when uh, things change in a relationship, sometimes, uh, you know, two partners uh, have sex less frequently, and they don't... uh, exchange, kissing, as passionately as they do at the beginning. So they seem to be more reluctant to engage in these uh, very passionate but also intrusive and somewhat stressful behaviors. So that might suggest that uh, they're less committed to the relationship. They're less close. So something changes in the relation. Maybe some of the original passion fades. And as a result, a couple is less likely to engage in these uh, very intimate but also intrusive uh, expressions of affection.
0: Well, Dario Maestri-Pieri, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I have a few questions I'd like to ask you about you. And one of them is, can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment in your life that changed your view of the world?
1: Um, When I was a child, I think I was about 10 or 12 years old, uh, I happened to read a book about uh, aggressive behavior in animals and humans, written by an Austrian biologist uh, named Konrad Lorenz. He's considered one of the founding fathers of ethology, the biological basis of behavior. So I read this book and how the author explained human behavior, particularly a tendency to fight, from a biological perspective. So I remember thinking, aha, this is what I want to do in my life. I want to study behavior from a biological perspective. I want to study animal behavior, and then I want to compare animals and humans to explain why human beings behave the way they do. And then from then on, I pursued a career in animal behavior research in academia.
0: And you may have just answered the next question, but it is, what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life?
1: I would like to share uh, the knowledge that I've acquired in my life with other people, starting with my family members, my children. I would like to teach them everything that I've learned, but also other people. So uh, I write books because uh, I don't want to keep my knowledge to myself. I want others to, to learn what I've learned and to make use of this knowledge to improve their lives. Uh, but I, I also want to uh, uh, discover new things. I uh, I, I've always had this passion for knowledge, and it's not just about reading books or doing research. So I'm interested in uh, arts and music. So I'd like to, to spend more time, for example, learning about arts and going to museums and going to exhibits. That's what I plan to do when I retire.
0: And is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners?
1: There is one that I mention in my book. When I talk about dominance, I use examples from the literature. And this is a very well-known book whose author won the Nobel Prize for Literature, I believe, in the 70s. The title of the book is *Auto da Fe*, And the author's name is Elias Canetti. He won the Nobel Prize for writing this novel. It's the only novel that he ever wrote. And then he just published a Sociological essays. It's, it's a very interesting story. Uh, it's, it's a great story, but it also uh, tells a lot about human nature and the dynamics of human relationships. So I, I use it as an example uh, when I talk about couples and dominance between couples, but it's a great book, and I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in literature and is interested in reading a good story.
0: Dario Pieri, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious.
1: You're welcome. My pleasure.
0: Dario Mastrapiere is the author of Games Primates Play, an undercover investigation of the evolution and economics of human relationships. He's a professor of comparative human development, evolutionary biology, neurobiology, psychiatry, and behavioral neuroscience at the University of Chicago. The book that he recommends is Auto da Fe that's A-U-T-O-D-A-F-E, by Elias Canetti. This interview with Professor Dario Mastropiere was recorded on April 16th, 2012. All Radio Curious programs are free at our website, radiocurious.org. Our phone is 707-462-6541. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestad is our associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.